Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about the Giro d'Italia. Jai Hindley just beat Richard Carapaz over the weekend by a minute and 18 seconds. He wedged open a big gap, the biggest gap between first and second we saw in the entire race on stage 20 on a very difficult final climb. He waited until about, it's a little hard to tell because there was a breakaway up the road, two and a half kilometers left to go. Yeah, it's, a lot of complicated stuff happened. I break it down in my news, newsletter, but long story short, he just rode Carapaz off his wheel. Carapaz cracked like an egg. He pulled out enough time that he could even lose seven seconds to Carapaz in the final time trial and still easily hold on for the win. I have a newsletter that just went out yesterday. It kind of breaks down in detail, like where things went wrong for Ineos, how Bora won, but just the, the main th- takeaway I had was that Ineos probably... And there's little stuck in the past still. They're doing this super defensive riding early in Grand Tours. You know, they needed to be taking time in that first week. And we saw in Blockhouse on stage nine that Carapaz gapped Henley when he attacked. I have Andrew Vance from the Choose a Hardway podcast on later this podcast, and we'll discuss this a little bit more. You know, we didn't totally agree on the attack and like what was really going on there. You know, but potentially he could have put time into Henley if he would have stayed on the gas and tried to open that gap. But he was kind of jousting with Bardet and Landa. It's potential. Potentially he just couldn't. You know, those guys were at the limit. Henley was following Almeida, who was riding at the limit. They were all riding, you know, around 6.5 watts per kilo. They're going to end up at the finish at the same time. You know, maybe Carapaz actually could have sat and attacked later in the final kilometer, which actually had some rolling terrain which he's better at than just straight climbs and wedged open some time there but really i go back to stage seven um, perfect raid day perfect day for a strong team to put another contender who's maybe not as experienced and doesn't have a strong of team under pressure and yes we saw in stage 14 in torino i think the best stage of the race that bora was strong but at the time on stage seven they still had three leaders they had kelderman bookman Henley, you know, you, you can exploit that. If you're Enios and you're behind one rider, you can, you know, make them make hard decisions. We saw that happen stage six of Volta Catalunya this year. They get Carapaz up the road. UAE can't decide who to support. Almeida's team wants to work, you know, Juan uh, Ayuso wants to work for himself, doesn't want to work for Almeida. And he, he wedged open a massive gap that way. You know, they probably should have done the same thing on stage seven. It gets weird because you think, well, that's a lot of energy to invest first week of a grand tour when we are in the better position but you're really it's it's an optical illusion you're going against jai henley who's an amazing climber one of the best climbers in the sport potentially the best you know maybe probably equal to pogachar on the mountains you know how are you going to hold him off in that final week how are you going to hold him off on stage 20 and it never totally made sense but that's not really the way you're thinking during a grand tour as a team you're just thinking conserve 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 if we're winning on stage 20, that's great. We'll figure it out then. You know, looking back, hindsight's 2020, they needed to take time on stage seven, probably. That was their big missed opportunity. You know, and maybe even on some of these sprint stages, they could have tried to tail Henley off the back, be more aggressive. That's a little bit harder than, it's easier said than done. I think stage 11, you know, we saw Enios blow it up with about 100K to go. Carapaz got the intermediate sprint. Maybe they should have you know, maybe they should have worked harder and tried to really split that up in the crosswinds. Take two minutes, take three minutes on that stage. We've seen Tour de France once that Tour de France has won that way in recent years. It's just not as windy in, in Italy, though. You know, I don't know. We're really splitting hairs here. But, you know, long story short, I think, yeah, crosswinds, stage 11, stage 7, 
could have been more aggressive. We we saw the the post blockhouse. They knew they were in a little bit of trouble. They didn't know the problem is they didn't know on stage seven that Henley was such a good climber relative to Carapaz. They figured that out on stage nine. They were racing more aggressive from stage nine onward. Uh, stage fourteen, Bora really brought it to them. Carapaz tried to counter. I still think that move was way too far out. You know, like thirty k out. Like that's really tough to make a solo move in a grand tour from that far out maybe he could have waited until the final climb tried to gap them on the summit hold them off on the descent steal some time that way you know but the at the end of the day henley was just so good and carapaz is not he's not a watts per kilo monster yet Ineos kind of races as though he is and that's where it feels like they're a little stuck in the past like they think they have chris room there they don't have chris room they have carapaz is an artist he's not you know, a jackhammer like Lance Armstrong or Froome, who's just going to, I think Lance described his writing style recently as stand right there and I'll punch you in the face as hard as I can. That's not Carapaz. Carapaz is, uses sleight of hand. He uses varying terrain to, to put you off balance and then strike a blow that you don't, seem, you don't see coming and then um, take time that way or win, win races that way. He's not someone you really want to take into that stage 20 you know, with a three second lead that was just never big enough for that climb. Unless Henley had a terrible day, that wasn't going to work. And the last thing I'll say is they just, it was so weird to me. They paced hard on that climb. I mean, you could see Pavel Sivakov, his teammate, asked Karapaz if he was doing okay because he didn't look like he was doing very well at the bottom of the climb. He says, Yeah, I'm fine. But, you know, maybe we, you, you shouldn't pace as hard as you can. You know, they, they kind of set that Henley attack up. Bora was not strong enough to set a hard pace for Henley to attack off of. Ineos probably tried, should have maybe just tried to ride that climb as slow as possible in retrospect. But I'm um, not clear where, where Ineos goes from here. Carapaz seemed happy with the second place. Uh, we talk about the Andrew and I talk about all of that a little bit more. So I'll wait until then to bring it up but also jai henley is he going to go to the tour de france i was having a conversation with a friend about this yesterday you know he's very good he's a very good climber i don't know if he really has the time trialing chops in like complete package to really challenge for tour you never know though um he's probably going to be pretty tired you know this was a hard hard giro the tour is three weeks away that just seems like a tough tough turnaround so um, no, sorry, it's four weeks away. Just seems like kind of uh, almost an impossibly difficult turnaround. But I'll get into all of this with Andrew, and we talk about unbound gravel. Peter Sagan going there. Andrew's gotten second in that race twice, so kind of has a unique perspective on it and the challenges Sagan is going to face when he hits heads to Emporia, Kansas, to race that. All right, here's Andrew Vance from the Choose the Harway podcast. All right, Andrew, last time you were on, you said Richard Carapaz was going to win the Giro d'Italia. Uh, did that happen? I'm on, I, I didn't catch the last few stages. Did he, did he seal it up, seal the deal on the last two? I believe that Carapaz won everything but a handful of kilometers of the race, and they just happened to be the most important kilometers that led to him actually not winning the race. So I was incorrect and that's what's beautiful about cycling and what's beautiful about sport and if we think back a few years and this is definitely one of the things that i want to explore here with you today spencer uh just the lack of predictability in cycling 
feels like it has increased in the last several years. To me, this is evidence that we are seeing a cleaner cycling. And if we look back to the very hardcore doping era when results were a bit more predictable, riders behaved in almost a more robotic and predictable manner, uh, I think we're seeing a pretty stark contrast in more human performances in 2022 than we did in the early 2000s. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about, I was mowing the lawn yesterday thinking about that exact question. I mean, embarrassingly on stage 19, I saw Carapaz come into that finish and I thought, this guy is unbreakable. He's winning the zero. I went and placed a substantial bet on him to win the overall. And he cracks the next day. And he looked, I could tell on the Paso Portois that he was in trouble. It's like, oh no, this is not going to go well. So very embarrassing. I, and, I, and I host a paid gambling podcast on cycling. So it's, I should be right about these things. And in our pre-race preview, Lance Armstrong was, was on it as well with us. And he said something about Jai Henley. And I was just thinking to myself, man, does this guy even watch cycling? Jai Henley? Yeah, hasn't done anything for two years. And then of course he wins the overall. He probably, if you would have put like a hundred dollar bet on Henley at the beginning of the race, you maybe could have won six figures on it. So um, I feel very silly for, underestimating Jai Hindley. I thought he was fantastic in those final two stages. Carapaz, still a great rider. But you bring up a good point because what I was just thinking, whatever the UCI is doing, I rag on the UCI all the time, like in my private life. I think they're just a useless, terrible organization. But clearly, what whatever they're doing with anti-doping or doping is working. Like either they've taken the brakes off completely and everyone is doping and it's super equal or I know with the biological passport, if you don't follow this really closely, it wouldn't be obvious to you, but they used to try to prosecute people for violations of the passport. It doesn't work, like doesn't hold up in court essentially, but now they use it as like a, like a radar gun, like a cop would. And if you, if your values are a little suspect, they'll call you in and say like, you got to chill out. Like we know what's going on here and we're, we're going to start doing targeted testing do you want someone at your house every morning testing you? You need to get these values down. You know, perhaps that's working really well because it, you're right. It's so equal. Like it's actually really thrilling racing to have so many riders so close. And yeah, there was the do- like 90s big time doping, 2000s. We all know what happened there. But even like think about the mid 10s with Ineos or Sky being so dominant. And I don't, I, I mean, we know there was weird stuff going on there with the Jiffy bag and people ordering testosterone and potentially EPO. I know there was some EPO link like to their offices. And then, you know, now they're doing like the Tim Robbins sketch of like, we're trying to figure out who did this. Like we won't rest until we find the perpetrators, but whatever's changed. I mean, it's changed for the better. Like Ineos was amazing at Perry Roubaix. So strong. Same thing with Yumbo at Perry Nice. And then, both those teams look terrible at the Giro, which is so fun for us. So yeah, long story short, whatever is going on with anti-doping is is great. It's like keep keep this going because I've never seen the sport so exciting and like so full of suspense late in these grand tours. Yeah, I just wanted to read a quote from Pavel Sivakov following the day of Karapaz's loss of time that led to him ultimately losing the tour of Italy. And he said, we tried everything, that's sport. 
we handled the stage well, but he, he being Jai is the strongest in the end. So there's nothing more to say. I mean, that's, that is sport. That's, that's why this is interesting. It's not watching, um, robots controlled by power meters, which is what, uh, people had to say about pro cycling for a while that, you know, now that the science is dialed in the science of nutrition, the science of training, the DS in the car is just calling the shots and these robots are pedaling, staring at their computers. And that's that, that's actually not the case. And even looking back recently, earlier in the season, I was thinking about Rohan Dennis at the tour de Ramadi and his final day, um, it was called a collapse in some outlets, but we saw a turnover there on the final day and Spencer, you are, you are the stat man. And I am wondering if you happen to have on hand a stat about the percent of grand tours or week long races that have had a turnover in the final two days of competition in the last 24 months. That's a good question. I did, I did go through this. First of all, Mr. Sivakov, I guess is right. I'd still have some questions about Ineos. I don't, because you could see him come up to Carapaz at the base of the final climb, which is, if you've ever ridden it, is like the hardest climb you'll ever ride. The thing is really, really serious. And he asked Carapaz, you can see him say, are you okay? Carapaz does not look okay. And he says, yes. It's not clear to me, then why does Ineos go, if they know that their leader is is not doing well, why did they go and set such a hard pace and essentially set up that Henley attack? Maybe you could say it's, you know, it's like a puffer fish puffing themselves up really big. They thought if we set a, a really crisp pace, we can bluff people into thinking that we're stronger than we are and no one will attack. That's worked with Chris Froome. Like in 2017 on the Paris Sword, he was like, he was effed. Like he would have been dropped if anyone would have attacked. Ineos just kind of sets a tempo on the front. No one attacks. Bardet sprints in like the last 200 meters and puts like 30 seconds in a firm in that small amount of time. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But to me, that's still the big question. I don't quite understand that. And if I was going to critique one thing about their performance, that would be, or if I was going to critique two things, that would be one of them. The other is I don't think they were aggressive early enough, but we'll cover that later. You know, I was, they, they, these overturns don't happen that often. If you remember, so the 2020 Giro d'Italia, oddly, Henley goes into the final time trial in pink and lost it that day. So that would be one. 2020 Tour de France, similar thing on stage 20, the overturned happened. And I'm trying to think, the Volta Spagna, it, it's not common. Like I went back and looked, there's a lot of final day Giro time trials and there's not many changes of leadership it's actually kind of you'd think it would be really exciting it's not super exciting Dumoulin in 2017 came back from like it, it, it looked dramatic on paper he came back from like two minutes down to win the race but he was such a good time trialist relative to Quintana that he was always going to be able to do that you know it, it was essentially the long story short not common until 2020 now quite common much more common than it used to be so and, and some of this is probably organizers making the end of races more exciting. Like I saw in 2025, the Giro is doing the final stage up the Stelvio. I think it's a summit finish on the Stelvio. So that's going to be electric. And the tour, I mean, the tour used to, if you remember like the Jean, Jean-Marie LeBlanc era, like they would do like three sprint stages to finish the race, which is crazy. Like how anticlimactic is that? So 
There has been some changes of courses over the years that, that has facilitated this, but it's undeniably more exciting at the end of Grand Tours now. And Spencer, what do you think about the time trial on the final day? Because it can break one of two ways. It can break the race wide open. It can change leadership. Or it can just be a really boring day, particularly as someone watching the race on TV or streaming. So where do you land on this? Is it is the time trial on the final day dramatic or is it the most boring thing you could possibly uh, use moving images to show to people trying to follow the race? I mean, I've thought a lot about this. Both, I guess. I mean, it could be better, but they... Um, you know, I, I don't like the processional final day. I think that's like, if you're just thinking about like it from an executive point of view and it's like, we have a sporting event and it's on a Sunday in prime time and it's going to be effing useless and nothing's going to happen. Like that's just bad marketing for your sport. The, the tour is a little bit different because the Champs-Élysées stage is so exciting. Once they hit the, they call them like slats. They look like cobblestones though. But once they hit that, it's exciting. Imagine if Carapace had a three-second lead over Henley going into a stage like that. That would be electric because time bonuses would be on the table. A potential split would be on the table. As long as they race to the line and it becomes, it doesn't become like a de facto nothing day, that's fine. The Giro has done, the Giro likes its final time trial. It can be boring, but if you ever watch the stages that aren't a final time trial, they're even worse. Like they did a circuit race in 2018. I forget the city. I mean, it was like they, the riders decided it was too dangerous, so they didn't even race it. Where it's like, well, that's the worst case scenario. I don't know. I, I, I'm open to suggestions on final days. I feel like they're very, they're not done particularly well. I mean, the finish on the Stelvio, like th if that happens, that's going to be awesome. I feel like that should be embraced more. Or if the time trial at the Tour um, in 2020 was the final day. That would be very exciting too. Uh, the zero, the problem is the final time trial is often so short or bereft of features that it becomes too easy. You know, there's almost never an, it's, it's like a false sense of suspense where maybe someone could overcome a deficit, but they, there's not the terrain to do it, which is probably the issue. And what do you think about bike changes? within time trials. I mean, I know that we didn't see that in this final time trial at the Giro, but we have seen it a number of times. We saw it at Ramadi, for example, in May. Uh, we've seen it in other Ramadi, of course, not a Grand Tour, but we've seen it in Grand Tours in recent years. What do you think about bike changes? Should they be allowed? And do they add an element of drama or do they make pro road racing a bit more like the transition zone at your local triathlon, perhaps minus arm warmers. I mean, as a consumer, I'm all for them. They couldn't be more. I mean, people, they, you can be pretty good at riding a bike, pretty good at driving a car, pretty good at doing bike changes. And it's like, you still look pretty silly doing it. And there's a high chance for major errors. So right there, I'm in. <laughs> like count me in as I feel like teams do it too much. I feel like they do it without questioning the science at all. Like it, it's risky to do a bike change and you lose a ton of time. I mean, if you've ever ridden a bike, if you're going 25 miles an hour and you stop, get on a new bike, start from a stop, you're losing a lot of time. You could be losing upwards of 30 seconds doing that bike change. I mean, am I just feel, I feel old, but like, remember 
Alpe d'Huez time trial in 2004 Tour de France where like they just were on road bikes with TT bars on it. Like I feel like now teams would be, we got to do the first 4K on a TT bike and we're going to change. But if you're in a road bike, especially an aero modern road bike with TT bars, I think you can go pretty fast on that. I, I don't know. I feel like teams just do it because other teams do it and no one's actually stopped to think, is this a good idea or not? And no one appears to be putting a lot of time into rehearsing that actual bike change it's not like watching an f1 team do a pit stop no it's like you know joe's gonna jump out of the car now and he's he's gonna swap the bike out and then he's gonna i mean you could get like a former bobsledder or something to be your bike pusher just bring in a ringer nobody's doing that (laughs) that's a really good idea yeah like there's a south african rugby player he's retired now but he's called the beast and he's like potentially the fastest biggest like the fastest strong big person ever in the history of the world like he should just be pushing just have him jump out of the car and just fling these guys up the mountains <laughs> that's a good point that should happen more i do think that the bike changes i i really bothers me they did this at the world championships a few years ago that they let them have someone on the side of the road with a bike which you're not allowed to do bike changes like that ever they they definitely should not let teams do that they should make him do it from the top of the car because that's where you get a lot of the stuff going wrong and it's more interesting and it adds like a, a real calculus to it. Like, do we actually want to do this? I mean, yeah. I, I, as a writer, I would hate it. Like that would suck to have to get off and then you have to try to clip on a bike. Like, and I'm surprised there's not more people doing like two pet, two sided pedals and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that side of the road bike method today known as the Ghana method, of course, <laughs> Uh, yeah, not allowed and, uh, and not used in these bike exchanges, but adding in a whole other area of potential technical development and optimization. Cause think about how consumers could benefit from, from a roof racks, like optimized for a quicker release if they're not in the, the rear hit track game. <laughs> yeah. I it's another lot- chance to sell more stuff. It's not just gravel bikes that you have to buy. Now you could get, you could get an optimized roof rack optimized for speed release. For yeah, because it, it's super practical for <laughs> everyday consumers. I think a lot of those are are uh, custom bike racks. Which oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, Spencer. I feel like I maybe have taken this conversation a bit in the direction of ketchup on pasta or uh, pineapple pizza, so oh, we can get no. back to the substance. You do bring up a good the Ghana people don't follow cycling obsessively. There's this bizarre thing where Filippo Ghana was. I think it was a tour of Provence. I could be wrong on that. He was in the leader's jersey. His team, Ineos team, gave him a bike from the side of the road, which is super illegal. Like, in no way is that ever allowed. He was disqualified from the race. It begs the question of, does Ineos not know the rules? That probably isn't true. Or are they just so used to breaking the rules and they happen to get caught? And we've seen this with the bottles. You mentioned this to me during the race where they're, they're giving feeds way too late. And getting penalized for it well are they just always doing that do they view the rules as some sort of like yeah whatever like we probably won't get caught it kind of raises a bunch of questions that it was shocking to me that they would be so blatant of just giving a bike from the side of the road or giving bottles inside the final 20k and it like begs the question of what's in those bottles we don't have to get into the key to ketones discussion right now i mean i've heard anything from like ketones will make you a superhuman to ketones don't help you at all. So 
I don't really know where I land on that personally. Yeah, I don't know. And who knows, like, as you said, who knows what's in the bottles? Maybe it's innocuous. Maybe it is just an ordinary bottle. Maybe maybe it's tramadol 2.0 like who knows what's going in the bottles these days hopefully not or maybe it's ketone product maybe it's 120 grams of carbs because if you do have your fuel stores topped off you're in a much better uh, position to actually convert and make it happen in the finale and yeah so who knows if we go back to the zero what you're you're a carapaz guy Ineos guy like if you were sitting down with the team today, like would you have any notes on the Giro or do you think ever, they did like everything they could do and they just got beat by a stronger rider? I feel like it just was unpredictability. I think they got beaten by a stronger rider equally. You have to wonder, because I think a part of what happened, like there's certainly undeniably a physical dimension of this. And if you look at where in the race, the lead finally changed hands. It was on an incredibly challenging climb. Equally, you'd had three weeks prior to that with many moments that were similar. And as is the case, uh, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but I used to write about mixed martial arts quite a bit. And I wrote about a number of UFC champions. And uh, there's something that they say in mixed martial arts that the victor is the person who imposes their will on their opponent. And there's a physical aspect of that, but there's also a psychological aspect. And I wonder if Enios and Carapaz might have struck a psychological blow earlier in the race that could have demoralized Jai Henley and the Bora team and just put them in the headspace of this is not actually achievable, which might sound far-fetched, but the psychological dimension of sport is... You know, it's on par with the physical dimension of sport. And in order to create that psychological impact, you generally have to do something physical. In mixed martial arts, it's generally like hitting someone so hard that they suddenly decide, uh, you know, they're just like their will to compete kind of drains. And then that's when someone's will is imposed on someone else or they do something uh, so technically proficient that the opponent feels like I'm not going to be able to escape escape this or win. When it comes to bike racing, I do wonder, had Carapaz and Enios been able to achieve something more dominant and more in line with what we've seen them do in the past, but equally, we've now seen so many times in so many races, going back to where we started this conversation that, you know, this isn't like 2005 and one team is not going to go to the front of the race and have an incredibly dominant train that just destroys everyone else in the race there's you just don't have that asymmetry of talent of ability of physicality that seemed to exist in the peloton 15 to 20 years ago so i'm not really sure but i think the one thing that Enios could have done is to have struck a devastating blow earlier in the race and just to have gotten into jay henley's head but maybe that's his strength as a writer is that he, you know, never stopped believing and saw something, saw some weakness in Carapaz and always knew that he was going to have this moment. But what do you think, Spencer? What could Enios have done differently? Do you believe that Carapaz and Enios potentially could have won this race? I do think they could have. And I guess a blow, not only just to Henley's psyche, but I mean, if they just get a minute in that first week, 
That's enough. Carapaz maybe could overcome him in that time trial. He ended up losing by a minute 18. They really just needed to buy themselves a minute somewhere on the course. I guess in their defense, stage nine was clearly they were planning the knockout blow there where they have they launch Carapaz from like 5K from the summit. I guess they thought he was going to ride away from everyone, but do they? it's like they didn't know Richard Carapaz. Like the, Carapaz is not a watts per kilo monster. That's not what he does. And if, you know, let's say Blockhouse is, you know, 30 minutes long, something like that. And if, every, if Carapaz can do 6.3 watts per kilo for that amount of time, I mean, there's a lot of guys in the peloton. As we saw, six riders came to the finish who can do those numbers. They're supposed to be like the math team. Did they not? It's very confusing to me. Like they thought he, they just keep riding like they have peak Chris Froome. And then that's not even getting to the point that peak Chris Froome wouldn't be able to drop Jai Henley. Like the levels just ridden, risen since they were dominating in that fashion. And they seem to be stuck in the past a little bit. You know, I think stage seven, I, I look back on that and they rode like, you know, like U.S. Postal defending a six minute lead in the Tour de France. Like they were so conservative on stage seven, which was like Carapaz needs short climbs with, you know, many short climbs as we saw like the Torino stage on stage 14, where he was, he looked pretty good and he was pretty active. He didn't get time, but I liked how aggressive he was. They needed to be doing that on stage seven. Like he's not a high mountain climber. He's like a an assassin, basically. Like give him a lot of up and down terrain with a chance. You know, we saw it at Catalonia this year, stage six, where he went from the gun basically and stole minutes from the leader at the time. I, th I think it was Joao Almeida whose team kind of imploded behind, but that's where Henley was weak. Bora had a lot of leaders, especially in that first week. It's kind of simple. You get out in front of the race, you force Bora to make decisions. Are we racing for Jai Henley? Are we racing for Bookman? Are we racing for Kelderman? They can't get a consensus built. You steal two or three minutes in, in like a perfect trap stage like that. That's that's the one I look back and I wonder, do they wish they had that back where they were way too conservative? You could tell after Blockhouse, they knew they were in trouble. They were race, they were prioritizing bonus seconds, were racing, they were letting breakaways go because they didn't want Henley to beat Carapaz at the finish to take time. If you're already doing that though, you've got a problem. Like if you're not stronger than Jai Henley on these these small uphill finishes, how are you ever going to defend the jersey on stage 20? So potentially it was even too late. By stage nine, they realized their mistake and it was too late to course correct. But some of those sprint stages too. We saw him tailed off on stage, was that stage 18 in that sprint? You know, he ended up getting called back because of the 3K rule. But, you know, maybe on some of those, be a little bit more aggressive. Henley sits really far back in the sprint finishes. His team, at least early, wasn't as focused as Ineos. Maybe they could have pulled out some time there. But they did get beat by a stronger rider, but I think they had a chance to maybe build a lead in the first week and then try to defend a larger lead versus a three-second lead. So Spencer, let's go back to Blockhouse for a moment. So it was at four and a half kilometers to go when Carapaz made that attack. He had Bardet and Landa with him. And at that point, he distanced the other riders, including Henley. And then Henley made his way back to that front group with about 2K to go. Do you think that Carapaz, when he made that, that move that he had it within him to actually continue and that he just got caught up in particularly thinking about 
Landa potentially being a threat, which, you know, we've talked about this before. I don't think Landa was ever going to win the Giro. So was that a tactical error on Carapaz's part? Or do you think he had other reasons for easing up? It's a good question. Um, you'd, you'd hate to think that, yeah, he got caught up thinking about Landa. Part of it, it potentially is like an optical illusion. Because if you go back and watch it, it does look like they get away and they can't decide who's going to take the front. And so they sit up and let Almeida catch them with Henley on his wheel. I think what's really going on there, though, is they're going above what they can sustain with those attacks. And like they're not sitting waiting for someone to pull. They're just they can't go hard anymore. So like it looks like they're just staring at each other. But in reality, they're like, well, someone needs to go because I can't go. But they're going at about the physical limits of what anyone in this race can do. So they just like physically cannot push on anymore. And, and Joao was riding a more steady, but like still insanely hard pace that at, like basically it all came out on the wash. Like you could ride a climb surgy or you could ride it steady. And if you're the same person with the same capabilities, you're probably going to finish around the same time. I think that's more what happened there where Joao was like a representation of how fast they would be going if they all had ridden it steady. But instead, they were surging for really no reason. I don't really, and that's the way Carapaz rides. He he's like a very surgy, attacky rider. He won the Olympics with that style. It can work on a certain course, but on these sustained climbs, it doesn't really matter if you drop someone. Like especially if it's steep, if they can, you know, sit at four hundred and fifty watts, they're gonna pull you back. Like there's almost no point in dropping them. If you notice when Carapaz got dropped on stage twenty, he just lost the wheel. Like. That's how you ride someone off your wheel on a mountain. You don't attack them and create a gap because really the gap is just mental or artificial. Where I think, I don't, essentially, I don't think they did. I don't think there's any more they could have done. Henley, and if you, Henley took the front with like three minutes to go in that finish and still won the sprint. So potentially he was just always going to catch them, that there's no way they could have stayed in front of him. Yeah. I mean, potentially the other thing Carapaz could have done is he could have waited to attack right like maybe that was a match that he shouldn't have burned at that moment in time and maybe attacking closer to the finish would have been the move equally you know who knows we're just speculating because had he waited the pace that he's up someone else probably would have jumped so you kind of never know what would have happened but potentially was a poorly timed attack or you know, just it didn't go hard little, enough at the right time. A little overconfident. Yeah. Like, that's a long yeah. way to attack. 5K out. And, yeah, if you attack from a kilometer out, a surge does help. You know, because you're cheat, you're basically cheating time in your body with an attack. Can you hold that for 30 seconds? Because the last 30 seconds of that stage was downhill. So, or it was a downhill into an uphill. He could have maybe cheated the, the course there a little bit. But you can't cheat a 10% climb. Like, okay, you surged ahead of me. I'm just going to reel you back in. Like, I don't care that you've attacked me. Yeah, and we talked about this when we checked in at the midway point of the Giro. But on Blockhouse, that's where Carapaz sat up with 700 meters to go. Casually zipped up his jersey, which suggested to me at the time, I've read that as tremendous confidence. Equally... Looking back, I wonder if he was 
like quite recovered at that moment in time. And again, like had he not expended all of that energy at four and a half Ks to go, if he had just waited and attacked a bit closer to the finish when the attack might have had a higher probability of finishing and followed his head rather than his heart in that moment, that might have been the difference in the Giro and he might have won. Yeah. And I, I am of the opinion too that yeah, he's a funny rider. He's like a it's he's cool because he's so variable. He's just hard to ever get a hand on where he is. Like he came to the season so out of shape that potentially this is as good as I'm actually surprised he was as good as he was at this Giro. And you could just say, you know, I think to be a Grand Tour contender now, you don't come into the season like fit fit, but you have to come in at a high level. You know, there's only so much you can make up once January one is hit. And he was like losing minutes on easy climbs in January, February. You know, if there's cracks in your foundation, it's just going to, like we saw the stage two time trial, I look back at that and I think he should have put, you know, 20 seconds into Henley. You'd only put six into him though. And, you know, maybe little things like that just added up over the course of the three weeks. And by stage 20, the cracks in the foundation were like splitting were basically the, the house is falling down because he just wasn't fit enough at the beginning of the year. It's kind of an old school thing to be like, I'll come in so out of shape and just ride into shape by the Giro d'Italia. When you're going against someone as talented as Jai Henley, it, it's, it's probably hard to get away with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think that you can, uh, you can come into the season soft and think <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to ride my way into form and go win a grand tour highly unlikely at this point so i have three questions for you um and then we're going to get into the real thing unbound gravel so bora and jai henley i mean this is big for bora if you remember they were a second division team and they brought on peter sagan and they were like peter sagan's going to bora that doesn't make any sense and he was the team for years he's gone now they're winning they won a grand tour their first grand tour that's a big deal are we going to see a, are we going to see Jai Henley at this Tour de France? I think he's probably pretty tired. Maybe not. But will he, is like he going to enter the pantheon of multiple Grand Tour winners? Or is this like, oh yeah, remember when Jai Henley won the Giro d'Italia? I think he has more Grand Tour victories in front of him. And a counter question that I would have on this point is, are we entering more of a money ball era of professional cycling we're having that indisputably peter sagan amazing rider legend of the sport probably well worth whatever bora was paying him during his contract period equally you have to wonder what they sacrificed in order to pay his salary and the salary of the constellation of people we know that he has around him because i i think his contract you might you might actually know the total number Spencer, but doesn't he bring like five to 10 people with him in terms of writers and support staff it when he goes be, to a team? Might be more than that. Um, it's a lot. So just quickly, I, I'm actually consulting for a team on a topic like this. I won't name the team because it's probably highly embarrassing to them that they've had to bring me on. But he, I mean, he probably makes 6 million euros a year. I think he has five writers that he brings with them normally. Um, including his brother. And then he has a few mechanics. I know um, he's like a Slovakian mechanic that he brought to Bora, who's now stayed at Bora. Um, probably a good decision on that guy's part. And then like a masseuse, a trainer. Um, so it could be upwards of like 10 people you're bringing on. But Specialized does foot a lot of the bills. So Specialized is a bike sponsor who 
just basically follows him around wherever he goes. And like specialized was probably, you know, came to the team and said, you know, we'll, we'll pay you, we'll pay Peter Sagan's salary plus an additional million and free bikes. So the market rate for a sponsorship, you know, might be 2 million euros a year for a team from a bike company. So they're getting a, they were getting a great deal at the time, even though they had to hire a bunch of people, they were kind of an empty shell. I think at the time it, it made a lot of sense for them. I, I think, and they made it work for them. They built off the success Sagan brought. And now, you know, now I, I, they're like shedding the Sagan legacy and probably all that staff and they're entering a much more healthy economic situation. And do you think the value of a Jai Henley Giro victory versus what the personality of a Peter Sagan at present performance rate brings to a team? Do you see equality between those two factors? I think or, I think Henley I'd take the victory. I think Sagan is Sagan and I'll like always love him. I don't know how relevant he is, especially in like the European market. I mean, do people still think about him? You know, if you're not, people forget about you really fast. If you think of like Chris Froome, Israel signed him for 5 million euros a year. Does anyone even think about him anymore? I mean, you just, you, you leave the conversation so quickly that, you know, Sagan is still like a great brand ambassador for the gravel line at Specialized, but that's a lot of money to be paying someone to not really win races. Yeah, I've, I would be really curious if we were inside of Specialized, how they think of the ROI on their relationship with Bora, because Jai Henley, of course, was on a Specialized bike when he won the Giro relative to Sagan racing Unbound 100. We'll, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that in a minute. I mean, I think if Sagan was, I think the plan was Sagan would be like winning the Tour of Flanders and also racing Unbound. That's where it starts to make more sense. I don't think him finishing 50th at Unbound and also not racing anymore was exactly what they had in mind. Yeah. I mean, Spencer, you grew up in rural Kansas. You know that you've got to make hay while the sun shines. And I think that's what we're <laughs> seeing specialized do with the the health situation that Sagan is facing in the season that he's having, but I we're bleeding over into to gravel now, but I do think just the cult of personality and someone's influence versus their actual results in a race. This is a really interesting dynamic, although having a level of high performance and achievement and the world tour and in particular like grand tours is often what sets the stage for the latter stages of a rider's career and sustained market value. Like I think a good example of this is Jens Voigt, right? Cause I mean, Jens is now a media personality. He has a grand fondo. He continues to have a following. He's got his, his catchphrase, you know, Pitbull's catchphrases don't stop the party. Jens Voigt's catchphrase is <laughs> shut up legs, right? So Pitbull and Jens Voigt in some way are analogous. I digress. But the, the key there is Jens, I think was never costing Trek that much money. You know, I think Jens is actually a good, good value for what it's actually great value for, for what he brings to a brand. So Jens, the fact that he was getting, he was on Trek Segafredo in his later years, he was still a pretty good rider though. And, you know, he was, he was flirting with breakaway wins on big stages of the tour, even at the very tail end of his career. 
And I doubt he was ever costing them very much money. So Jens would be like an example of a great brand ambassador. Um, we'll, we'll talk about Sagan. And, but also think about what this is doing in, in Australia, like a very wealthy country who probably most people, I mean, there's a cycling culture, but the fact that Jai Hindley, an Australian, just won the Giro on a specialized bike is not insignificant for specialized. Like they have to be very happy about that. Spencer, I want to jump back for a second because now that we're talking about Australia, this has brought something up in in my mind. And something came up during the Eurosport broadcast in the middle of one of the stages where there, you know, there was a drone hopper break off the front, probably. And the commentators on Eurosport started to talk. I think McEwen brought this up that back in the day. There were times when he would be in an early break and he actually would jump off the side of the road with the other breakaway riders once they got the other sprinters teams to start chasing and they would hide behind a car (laughs) and wait for the peloton to go past and then jump back into the race in order to tire out these the sprint trains and the support riders from the other sprinters teams and apparently this there everybody was like oh yeah like i did that in this race and blah 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 and they're just talking about how that's not possible today, but it was like a very interesting, whimsical moment of uh, cycling from a not too distant era when it perhaps had less complete coverage of those those early breakaways. I, that's a really yeah, I've heard of this too. I mean, Clark Sheehan, he's a director for Rally now, was like famous for this. So he like would be in a break, would get a team to work, and then would like hi, go to the bathroom, hide in the bushes, wait for them to come by, and then come out and jump in the last wheel and then the team would basically pull him to the finish without knowing what they were doing <laughs> but yeah it is is a crazy thing that, that that ever worked apparently it did so is richard carapaz obviously richard carapaz olympic champion zero champion the guy could retire today with a great career is he ever going to win another grand tour i mean he some of the same problems henley has which is mainly the time trial it's hard to it's hard to win Grand Tours without a great time trial. I think he will win another Grand Tour. I think that there's going to need to be a substantial shift in how he approaches the 2023 season. I'm still really bullish on Carapaz. I still believe he's an incredibly mentally strong rider. He's very physically gifted. I don't think we've seen the last of him on the top step of a Grand Tour. But... Something that jumped out at me in coverage of the final day of the race was Carapaz talked about being very content and happy with finishing second and how it was a wonderful birthday gift to finish second on on his birthday. I guess the final day of the Giro was his birthday. And Spencer, as a competitor yourself and someone who, uh, like me, has followed the sport very closely you know, that, that is not a very common, um, you know, it does embody a very mindful, uh, kind of approach to losing a grand tour, but it's not commonly the mentality that we see from, from people who are in, who like truly would do anything to win. So how does that kind of statement sit with you on the day that someone's lost a grand tour? I mean, obviously, Carapaz knows more about winning. He's forgot more about winning than Oliver. No, I think it kind of speaks to. I texted you this crackpot theory that Carapaz, like my count is four Grand Tour podiums. 
I wonder if he's like a super ala Philippe that, you know, if his strengths are really bumpy one day races, things like the Olympics, world championships, and that he's just been miscast as a grand tour contender. And like potentially that comment indicates he knows it, that he's out here like punching out second places in really competitive grand tours. And like that, that's amazing for him to be able to do that without the physical gifts and tools that Primus Roglic or Jai Henley or Jonas Vindegaard or Tadej Pogacar have that he knows that he cannot match those guys on long sustained climbs and in time trials and is essentially like doing this with magic. He's just a magician out there who's lucky to be on the podium. Not lucky, but but it's difficult for him to compete with the superior talents. I mean, that, that's what the comment would indicate to me. Yeah, that's a great point. And you have to think if he set aside everything that goes into preparation for a grand tour. And of course he's been competing throughout the season, but in a slightly different role with this in mind that he was going to be entering into the Giro with the intention of winning it. Yeah. What happens if you take that off the table, you approach the season slightly differently and what opportunities then open up in those one day races or week long races. Something else I was thinking about, obviously second here, second at the Giro is is amazing. Um, I would love to get second place at the Giro d'Italia. You know, it was such a crazy, I don't know if you've looked at the Tour de France course, but it starts in Denmark, which is like a very, very well-run country. So they have an insane amount of traffic furniture and crosswinds. There's a Paris-Roubaix stage. You're like, man, I don't know. You You go to the Tour, it gives you more time to correct from your misfire at the start of the season. And, you know, there's no guarantee that Pogacar and Roglic and Vindegaard are even going to make it through the first week. You know, yeah, I, I would have wondered if, if he was better off rolling the die at the tour. And this brings me into my last question about the Giro for you. Ineos, I mean, they have more money than God. They cannot seem, they, they like literally can't buy a grand tour. Like what's going on? Like what's going on here? And like, where do they go from here? Like Richard Carapaz would have been their best tour option. Now they don't even really have a tour option that they've sent sent Richard Carapaz to the Giro. I can't even keep up with all the transfer things going on there. Everyone seems they can't get anyone to come and everyone seems to want to leave because this weird it's like this paradox where they have so many almost good riders that no one can have a guaranteed tour or grand tour leadership. So everyone wants to leave to get leadership positions, but no one wants to come in because they're worried they won't get leadership positions. Like, like what, what's the future here? How does this play out? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is writers who are great leaders elsewhere who have exceptional palmares, which is often the case with writers coming into Enios, don't always make great support writers. And I think that it creates a high tension situation within the team, even if they're being much more highly compensated than they would be on all, but maybe one or two other teams because of the resources that Enios has to engage these writers. I don't think that, that those writers are content. So I just get this sense that there's probably always something in the back of their mind. Writers are probably not always getting the opportunities that they want they can do that high level support role, but psychologically, it's not who they are as people. It's not what they feel comfortable doing. And if they're not getting the opportunity to get the the taste of winning that really fuels champions and these riders are champions, then over time, you're going to see what we're seeing, which is like a high level 
of turnover, riders going elsewhere where they can be more of the center or the focus of the team. And you have to wonder, can they employ someone who is going to be one of those generational super talents that you would think someone like Carapaz might be? But nonetheless, he's certainly a, a notch or two below a Tade or perhaps even a Primos. And it's just not not clear what their path is to getting a, a rider like that on board and then building a team of support riders who want to be there to win. But what do you think, Spencer? Where do you think Enios is headed and what do you think can potentially solve the leaky bucket problem that they appear to have? I'd be just ingrained in who they are. I mean, let's do a thought experiment here. Jai Hindley leaves DSM at the end of 2020. You know, he speaks English. In theory, he's perfect for Enios. I mean, I actually don't, the team kind of makes me uncomfortable with how much they love English and love the British Empire. And they made Chris Froome change his citizenship from, like, he won two Tour de France as an, as an African, and then they made him change his citizenship to British, even though he'd never been to England before. Um, yeah, so Henley would be perfect for them. He's from Australia, speaks English. Why, you know, A, why didn't he go there? But B, let's assume he goes there. You know, he does not win the Giro d'Italia because he's not the leader at the Giro d'Italia and he probably never gets a leadership position at that team. They have Teo Gagenhart who won the 2020 Giro with some of the best power numbers I've ever seen in the sport. And the guy is working for Luke Plapp and Ethan Hader at the Tour of Norway right now. Like, that's crazy. You know, I just think, I don't know if they can fix this. It was this... You know, when the team started, you know, they still do this. It's like overly cute, overly competitive, where it's like the week before the tour, like, well, we don't know who the team is. We don't know who's leading the team. It's like, do you think there's any doubt at UAE who their leader is for the tour? It's Tade Pogacar. At Yumbo, it's Primoz Roglic. Like, there's a benefit in knowing that. And then everything else is built off that piece of information where, you know, I have a lot of respect for Dave, Dave Brailsford in many ways. I want to become him. I, I look at him as like, wow, I would love to have that job and I admire what he's built. But some of some, I think that maybe he was re he reinforced bad habits because of the dominance of Chris Froome, where they were like, they took the wrong lessons from the Froome era. Like, you know, we're cutthroat. We don't give anyone leadership. We make them work up to the last day before the tour, before we tell them if they're even in the team and we're winning. It's like, well, you're winning because Chris Froome's amazing at riding a bike. And is like a competitor like we've never seen or haven't seen since Lance Armstrong. And then maybe they just built all these bad habits. And then now that Froome, they don't have Froome anymore. They're just going to continue to do this because it's not like they, they missed out on Pogacar. And then they tried to pay him 18 million euros a year. I don't know if you heard this to come to Ineos. And he said, no, not a great sign that he turned that down. But that's not verified, by the way. That's just what I heard. Not a fact. <laughs> and. You know, you just wonder, like, they have Carlos Rodriguez, who's a really good up-and-coming rider. He's not going to compete for a tour win this year, though. And, you know, they kind of went all-in on Bernal. And, you know, it's a little bit of bad luck. But Bernal was was struggling to keep up with Roglic and Pogacar even before the crash. And you just wonder, like, do they not have the ability to bring in... If they can't get a rider like Jai Hindley or Teo Gegenhardt to the start line of a Grand Tour as a leader, I, it seems hard to fix that. I don't quite... I don't quite see the path forward other than like tearing down the whole structure they have and rebuilding. Okay. First of all, I want everybody to get out a pen and a pad 
You heard Spencer say he wants to become Dave Brailsford. You heard it here. I don't know. This is the first time we've heard it, but I want everyone to remember this as we go forward. Second, this might seem orthogonal, but it's not. I want to come clean. The last time Spencer and I were together, I misattributed Juan Pedro Lopez's bottle throw as having been at Yates during the race. In fact, it was at Sam Oman uh, on Yumbo Visma. But this is where it all circles back, Spencer. When you look at Yumbo Visma, which today seems to have the appropriate alliance of writers with just the right skill set to support their GC ambitions, but incredibly talented writers, but in slightly different ways, with slightly different proficiencies, with slightly different ambitions, such that it is the scaffolding that can support their ambitions to have a Tour de France winner on the team and for everyone to ride in service of that winner. That feels like a very uneasy alliance to me. And I feel like we might be getting to the point with that team, and this might be the year that we start to see it collapse. What do you think? Well, I think actually, just to make sure we're being factual, I'm not sure Yumbo Visma has ever won the Tour de France. I think we were just incepted into thinking that they had. But but, I, but they, they have built a team with that yeah, intention, could, yeah. right? Right. I, so they, have, they haven't won it, but they certainly are coming to the tour with a very clear intention of winning with everyone riding in support of the same rider. I just don't, I guess what I'm saying is I don't sense the same tensions within that team that we now see on Enios equally. I kind of see them heading in that direction. I don't think that they can sustain the kind of like the, uh, the level of camaraderie and the single-minded focus towards a goal that we see within that team today as they enter the tour. But it probably honestly helps that Roglic crashes so much. I mean, like, they think about Vindergaard, like Roglic crash, crashes probably would have competed for the tour win last year. And he gets this amazing opportunity. You know, I would be I would be surprised if Roglic makes it through that first week of the tour this year without crashing. Vindergaard could easily find himself in the exact same position. You know, yeah, I see what you mean, especially with like Wout going for green. Like that's gonna take resources. He's not gonna be able to work for those guys like he has in the past. Yeah, it's not obvious actually that they don't have a lot of tension, but I I I I'm like a big good vibes guy. Like I just think in AOS, there's nothing about that team that like sends off good vibes and it's kind of an intense like even the signage inside the team bus is really intense and like aggressive. Um Yumbo is like a good vibes team. Like I think that can get you that can get you a long ways. Not to say they won't have problems. And I and I do think we are already seeing a little bit of tension even in the media with like how Van Art is talking like he, you know, he's being a little eager, being like, "Well, we're going for green. We're going for green. Don't let Primos tell you otherwise." Um, but, but they honestly, they owe it to him. He's done so much work for them as a writer of his caliber that he doesn't need to be doing that, you know, and, and maybe the Pogacar being so good helps them because it's again, like, oh, we're never going to beat this guy in his prime. So let's try to get as many podiums and green jerseys as we can. But, you know, I think you can, I think it's possible to manage those personalities. And with Primos being so like relatively old, I think he's like 33, maybe. Vindegaard being so much younger, they kind of fall into, 
you know, as Primo's ages out and Vindegaard comes up, you know, it could actually work pretty well. I think Ineos had too, they have too many guys that are too close to the same age and too close to the same abilities that they just, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe Yumbo has the same problem Ineos is having with Garrett Thomas, where like he thinks he's still a leader, but they don't think he's still a leader, but they still take him right. to races. I mean, we saw some real tension at the tour last year because of that. Could be. There's de- it's definitely not guaranteed they're not going to, things aren't going to blow up at the tour. I mean, is, is Wout a Grand Tour contender? I keep thinking he is, and he keeps proving me wrong. It seems to, he seems to not know that I'm saying this and want to support me in my take. Um, I wish Wout would just listen to me and win a Tour de France to make me look smarter, but we'll see what happens. I mean, he certainly seemed like he could do everything that a Grand Tour winner needs to do in 2021 at the tour, right? I mean, another writer on that team that I wonder about is Sepp Kuss, and he seems very comfortable in his role, like taking the occasional stage, being a super domestique, uh, having some leash in other races to go after different objectives. But is he going to be comfortable in that role in the long run or, or, or long enough for the team to achieve what it wants to try to achieve at the tour? Yeah. He just plays an absolutely critical role on the team. It's a good question. He's an amazing writer. There was a push last year in the team to like give Sep a chance to be a leader. And if you go back um, and watch how that went, it was in a lot of one-day races. It really didn't go well. I mean, he was incredibly poor. Like I think Ineo swept the podium at every stage race he was the leader at, which you wonder how is that possible because he's so good. Um, just something wasn't clicking there, you know, probably mentally or maybe even just the physical buildup. Like how, how is he not better in that leadership position? And he is quite inconsistent. You know, it's his big weakness. We don't notice it at the tour because he doesn't need to be consistent because he's not a GC contender, but he'll look fine on climbs and then he's gone. You know, he'll just get like dropped. I'm not quite sure. What it is, I mean, it probably makes sense. Like, who who could be a GC? Like, it's not normal to win a three grand tour. That's not a normal thing to do. Most riders aren't built that way. Most people aren't built that way. He did re-sign with the team recently, I believe. So potentially he's decided that he's in a pretty sweet situation where he's, I assume he's, I mean, guys like that, Mountain Domestiques make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. If you ever have a chance to do that as a career, I recommend it. Very few people can do it. I think he's probably, I mean, I don't know. I don't know Sep personally. I just, I've raced against him a few times. Never really had a conversation with him. Um, I would guess that he's pretty happy with what he's making. And if they let him win the odd Grand Tour stage, that's that's pretty special too. And I, I bet the chance is still there for one week leadership in the future. Or maybe even a Vuelta. You know, that's not, Primos isn't going to win every Vuelta for the rest of the time. So and a race, I mean, honestly, a race like this Giro, I was actually surprised that, you know, this this actually would have been a good way for him to dip his toes in Grand Tour leadership. I mean, clearly the 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 uh, opportunities there. Yumbo was terrible in the GC this year at this Giro, so <laughs> this the slots are open if he's willing to go for it. Yeah, um, future will tell. So we're gonna we're, let's talk about Unbound. It's this coming weekend. I kind of hate this race just because it happens in my old backyard not like literal backyard but it's a race in kansas it makes me feel like like all the suffering and and mocking i went through 
feels unfair now that like cycling's cool in Kansas. Like I don't quite know what happened there. <laughs> like they did, they do not embrace us. Don't be fooled, people. Sure, they put on a nice face for one day, but you finish second in the hundred mile edition. Peter Sagan is doing the hundred mile edition this year. That has to be surreal. I actually cannot imagine having performed well at a race that then Peter Sagan is, while while still an active pro. He's not particularly doing well, but he's he's a professional rider getting paid a lot of money. Probably one of the highest paid riders in the world is now targeting a race that you targeted. How does that feel? It feels strange. And I haven't just finished second at Unbound Gravel 100 once. I finished second twice. And, you know, I think part of the irony is at the time that I was targeting it as an objective, which was 2014, 2015, in 2013, I had my first attempt at the Unbound 100. And I accidentally followed the 200 route at mile 35 and ended up riding like 155 miles in my 100 mile attempt. That's chronicled on episode uh, 19 of Choose the Hard Way, my podcast about lessons learned at the limits of human experience. And I'm dropping an episode, or I did drop an episode about my 2015 Unbound 100 second place finish uh, just last night. So it's out there now. Go check it out. Choose the Hard Way on all the platforms where you listen. But yeah, it's kind of a lot of things feel surreal about it. Just like you, Spencer, we've talked about this before on different episodes we've done. But, you know, I grew up in Missouri. You grew up in Kansas. Uh, There's a lot that I love about the Midwest. I wouldn't say that it's uh, a region that generally has a real friendly uh, attitude or relationship between drivers and cyclists. In particular, there's not a lot of infrastructure supporting cycling being on the road or cyclists uh, having the right to be on roads. Motorists tend to be pretty aggrieved in my experience when I'm riding there. Um, Hopefully that's changing. And with Unbound itself, I think part of why gravel racing and riding has flourished in rural Kansas and other areas of the Midwest is because riders wanted to get away from cars that did not want them on the roads in the areas where they might typically go to train, ride, or compete. So there is some irony in Emporia, Kansas, now becoming really this epicenter, this global epicenter of gravel racing and having some of the biggest names in the sport, you know, riders who have won the Unbound 100 include world record holder and world champion Ashton Lambie, uh, Stephen Hyde, former cyclocross national champion, Rebecca Rush has been a winner of the Unbound 100, and now we have Peter Sagan going to ride the race. So it is a very surreal feeling. I think it's it's great, and I hope that in aggregate, the impact of the rise of Unbound is that the region has a healthier relationship with cyclists being on the road, and the idea that you know people moving under their own power is a really positive thing, can have a positive economic impact, as we've seen in Emporia, which now it's not just unbound. They built up an entire industry around gravel riding and, and racing, including, I believe that this year they're having the inductions into the gravel hall of fame are taking place this weekend, I think. And yeah, so I hope it's, you know, one of those instances of a riding rising tide, um, lifting up all ships and improving things. The question that I have with Sagan being at unbound is, 
is this going to be Remco at Belgian Waffle Ride, Kansas 2.0? Like, are we actually going to see Sagan riding and competing? Or are we going to see Sagan riding at the front for a little bit and then making a marketing video for Specialized, which is what we saw Remco do at Belgian Waffle Ride, Kansas? What do you think, Spencer? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that was a good point when you brought it up. It kind of broke my heart, but I do think there's slight differences. Rimco did that Belgian waffle ride in October. So it was his off season. He flew over from Europe. I assume I, I, am assuming he does not live in the off season in Lawrence, Kansas. So he flew over. He loves, he loves the <laughs> bottleneck. I'm sure that's why he's there. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's at one of the 500 downtown bars. I've never seen so many bars in my life as in Lawrence. And loves free, loves free state brewing. Oh yeah. Oh, he's and Ad Astra. He's excited that competitors opened up too. But you know, I and that's it's a hard place to fly to. You know, it's not there's no direct flights from Europe. That must have been a very difficult journey for him. You know, Sagan's doing the tour, I assume, in less than a month. So he has to be in pretty good condition. He needs to get a good training day. Like he can't I assume he's flying private from he's in Park City right now to Emporia. I can't imagine he's doing a commercial flight from Salt Lake City to Kansas City and then driving out. And maybe he is. I hope he's flying. Maybe he's maybe Vaughters is flying him. <laughs> right, right? Like that was always the big EF move that Vaughters would fly out, like Alex House or someone. And I don't know who drove their bikes. Somebody else probably drove their bikes. But of course, Sagan's not going to be riding with Vaughters. But I agree. It's unlikely he's flying scheduled. And scheduled. Yes. Sorry. Sorry, son. You had to do that. <laughs> that like hit me hard as someone who like, I'm very into points and upgrading to business class and thinking it's like very, a nice fun thing to do. And then like to see them destroy it like that with the cold cheeses in the movies was that hurt me emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have to imagine he needs a minimum. He needs a hard day of riding. How long did it take you when you got second, when you didn't do 150 miles? I think it took me six hours and change. And I'm sure that I bet Ashton Lambie did it in like five hours or actually that would be insane. That'd be really, I don't know. It's gotta be around five hours for someone who's a world-class writer. That is really fast. I, I, not me, but I mean, it's 105 miles. There are 5,000 feet of elevation gain, cumulative, and the 105-mile race. And really, the first 60 miles of the race, and I don't think I'm imagining this, you're typically riding into a pretty severe headwind. Like It's not an easy, pleasant day on the bike. It's very hard. Uh, also, you know, Sagan is a highly skilled bike handler, so I don't think this is going to be an issue for him. <clears throat> um, but like highly variable terrain. And this is something that I think about when you're putting world tour athletes into a race like this who haven't, you know, they have very serious competitive objectives. Like you said, Sagan's probably going to be at the tour in a month trying to win stages. And the way the Unbound 100 works, the entire 200 field starts, the Unbound 200 field starts, I believe, like... 15 to 30 minutes before the one, the unbound 100 field. So you all line up on main street, the 200 riders take off 
and that's everybody. So you have people who are going to take 15, 16 hours to finish that ride, maybe even more. And you have the privateers, professional gravel racers, whoever, who are on, on the front of the field who get call-ups and get to start at the front, who are going to finish in whatever, nine, 10 hours, whatever it takes them to ride the 200-mile race. So you have a thousand, over a 1,000 people in front of you when you start the Unbound 100. And you're, you're drilling it. You're going all out. And in that first hour, you're pretty quickly going to run into everyone in the 200 field. And it's going to be the slower, probably less proficient bike handling riders who are at the back of that field. And these roads are, they're bad roads. And there are a lot of blind potholes. There are just a lot of things that could take someone out. So you know, even with Sagan being a highly skilled rider, I think that there's like a fair degree of, of risk just riding a race like this, the way that it's conducted. And even I'm sure he's going to start on the front row, but there's no getting around the fact that they're going to quickly run into the 200 field. He's going to have to bob and weave his way through those riders. And that's at least an hour of the race that you're doing that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the race. It's a good point. It it doesn't really make any sense if you think about the risk reward three weeks from the tour. I mean, I guess Specialized pays his salary, as I mentioned earlier, and this is a big sales objective for them, pushing their gravel line, and it's big for them to have him at the race, I guess. I'm surprised they talked him into it. I can't imagine what those conversations were like. Yeah, I have no idea. Maybe he really had an appetite for it, or maybe you know, we're seeing the next phase of his career as a, as a, uh, he won't be a privateer. He'll have full factory support, but even if you do have full factory support and are a sponsored professional gravel rider, you do have to call yourself a privateer. I'm wondering if Sagan <laughs> now owns a four by four Mercedes sprinter van, or if, if he'll at least have access to one at the start. I mean, you're bringing up a good point. Um, yeah. So there is this trend of world tour cyclists retiring and becoming privateers and racing gravel races um most of them are like at the level of like ian boswell or i mean the best one would probably be lawrence tendam who was quite a good rider he's a he is a special person though there's not many people with that love cycling as much as him he would probably do a local crit if that's all there was to race i mean there's no way peter sagan once he's done world tour racing, we're never seeing that guy again like there's no way he is spending his days like going to rural America to race gravel events. I mean, there's just not the level of support. And like the man lives in Monaco, probably lives a very nice life in Monaco. I can't imagine we're going to see him back racing in the States much when he's done. What's the, like, what do you, who's the best rider that's going to actually start chasing wins at gravel races in the U S today like in well no like do you see in like five years in five years it could be jai henley <laughs> it, it could be i that would be sad if 26 year old jai henley is 31 years old 26 year old now jai henley is 31 in racing gravel and not in the world tour that would make me sad no and- i mean I, I i actually i love gravel racing i think it's awesome it's created clearly a boom of participants in the sport of cycling equally my prediction is that in five years, cross-country mountain biking is going to be really popular again. Again, like I know we've talked about this before, 
but I don't think that the gravel boom we're seeing today is going to be sustained five years from now. So I think we're going to, I mean, we saw this with mountain biking in the nineties. You had people like Greg LeMond, Bob Roll, uh, a number of other riders coming from professional road racing and going into cross country mountain biking, because paradoxically that was a very high paying profession at the time in terms of domestic cycling, domestic Norba top level pros in the early to mid nineties, you know, they were making like probably two, 300 grand, the best riders, which was much more than similar domestic professional riders who were on the crit circuit or whatever the case may have been. Um, so it was, it was a really lucrative way for people coming back from the equivalent of today's world, world tour riding to extend their careers a few years. And now we're kind of seeing a similar thing. We're also seeing people like Ian Boswell, Stetna for different reasons, just saying, Hey, this, this lifestyle or repeated, um, head trauma that unfortunately ends up happening with, with Rex, like that's not for me. I'm now going to pursue gravel racing, but I think we're going to see this increasing professionalization of the sport. And also, I mean, we're already seeing it with the evolution of the gear where, you know, the typical gravel bike can now accommodate what's like a 2.1 inch mountain bike tire. And like, we're just millimeters away from these, these riders like turning on single track. And then, yeah. then you have a cross country mountain bike race. Because the so. problem is at some point it just becomes road racing. Like if enough good riders are lining up for a mass start race on roads, that's road race. Like <laughs> at, you've accidentally invented road racing in the United States with gravel racing. Um, like what, what's the difference between un, obviously unbounds very long, but like Belgian waffle ride and Strada Bianchi, it's, just, it's ostensibly the same thing. And if you get too many good riders at Belgium Awful Ride, it's just, I mean, and maybe there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's kind of fun. Like if I could go race Strada Bianchi while there's also pros on the course, that'd be really cool. Um, but yeah, it's only a matter of time before a gravel promoter is like, and we're, we're doing an off-road section onto single track. And then next year we're doing a single track only edition. And then you've just invented mountain bike racing again, which is probably well, what's going to mean- happen. Look at the rule of three race that just happened in Bentonville, where you have Tom and Stuart Walton have built a cycling, you know, really just an incredible cycling infrastructure and community there in Bentonville. The rule of three, of course, had road, it had gravel, and it had very long sections of single track that are part of the hundreds of miles of single track they've built there in Bentonville. And the whole pitch for the race was number one, you had to figure out what's the best bike to ride, to go the fastest on this train. And number two, you had to compete. Uh, there was the, an individual race, I believe, but also you had this option of doing it in more of a Cape Epic style where you had to compete it with a set of partners. That's, that's interesting. It kind of is disrupting the gravel format. Also, it sounds really close to classic long distance cross country mountain bike racing in the nineties when you would have these really long loop routes or courses. And those courses would often have a bit of pavement. They definitely would have some fire roads and they'd have single track. So, but I think we're going to start to see people disrupting gravel with slightly different forms of competition that look a lot more like mountain bike racing. 
fact, we're already starting to see that. We might, uh, we, we should probably go I and mean, we're going to, we're, we're really, uh, abusing people's time at this point, but we might have to come on and I'm going to have to have you come on maybe next week and we'll do like a gravel, a, a gravel edition of the podcast. This is interesting. Like where, yeah. And where does like a consumer product in and end and just like a fun, enjoying thing to participate in begin? You know, and maybe maybe it's just the future is like marathons where you have top people racing the Boston Marathon and some people watch it on TV, but the real driver of the event is is the participation model. What that European road racing is never gonna have that. And maybe that's a lane for gravel to take. Yeah, it's the triathlon model. Because most people com- completing triathlons are there to complete, not to compete. And I mean, perhaps they want to improve their time if they're serious about it. But for a lot of people, that's that's the achievement. And that's great. You know, whatever gets people out there and gets them active. And in cycling, we've talked a bit about cross-country mountain biking. And we'll talk about this more in a future gravel-exclusive episode. But I think the analogous things in the past 20 years in cycling would be Grand Fondos, which even though there's gravel now and there are actually gravel Grand Fondos, I've done a number of them here in rural Maine, which have been a lot of fun, very grassroots. But prior to that, you had centuries. Centuries still exist today. They have a very high level of participation. It's just not the cool, sexy things. You don't hear a lot of people talking about, at least within the world of cycling media, nobody's like, Hey, I'm going to do the the Bobcat Tail 100 this weekend. No one cares that you're going out and doing a 100-mile bike ride. But by the way, if you are, I have a lot of respect for you, and I think that's awesome, particularly if you're giving it a shot for the first time. But to people who are they're drawn to the new, the novel, that's what gravel is, but that's what centuries were in you know, 1992, what Grand Fondos were in 2008, and what gravel is today. That's such a good point. Yeah, centuries are happening. There's a great century in Hawaii called the Maui century. And then there's the Dick Evans road race, which is really just a century that circles the island of Oahu. We're, we might have to do an offsite and complete both of those and then report a, record a podcast about it. So it, well, we'll talk about that in future episodes. I'm in. All right. Well, well thanks, Andrew, for joining. And we will, we'll be back. We'll have you back on soon. We'll, we'll, we'll have to break down Sagan's win at Unbound next week. Believe that. <laughs> Lock it in. Bet on it if you can. <laughs> Don't bet on it. That's not a good idea. He will not win. All right. Well, thank you so much and, and have a great day. Yeah. Take care, Spencer.